Hello, Shelf Care listeners. Susan McGuire here from Booklist, ready to talk to you about all things readers' advisory, collection development, and book and library adjacent. Can you think of anything more fun? Did you think of anything? No? Let's get on with it. On this episode of Shelf Care the Podcast, I have a conversation with librarian extraordinaire Robin Bradford that might possibly be the most librarian conversation I've ever had in my life. We veer from romance novels to formats and accessibility and then real smooth-like back to romance novels. It's wild. And by wild, I mean really, really nerdy. Then, Booklist's audio editor Heather Booth breaks down some big audio award news from ALA's midwinter meeting, including trends you should watch out for. Finally, I sit down with adult books editor Donna Seaman to talk about this year's Carnegie Award winners and what's so great about the Carnegie Awards anyway. But before we get started, here's a quick word. This episode of Shelf Care the Podcast is sponsored by Ravel, publisher of Suzanne Woods Fisher's Two Steps Forward. Sylvie needs a man of substance to help her run her business. What she gets is Jimmy Fisher. The last thing Sylvie Schrock King needs around Rising Star Farm is a grown boy working for her, especially her neighbor Edith's son. The woman holds a serious grudge against Sylvie, and hiring Jimmy Fisher will only fan the flames of Edith's annoyance. But Sylvie is desperate for help on the farm, and Jimmy understands horses like no one else. Did she get more than she bargained for? Two Steps Forward by Suzanne Woods Fisher is out now from Ravel. Hello, Susan McGuire again. Real excited about this interview. Robin Bradford honed her collection management chops at the Indianapolis Public Library and the Timberland Regional Library, and she is currently the collection development librarian at the Pierce County Library System in Washington State. She's the go-to expert on romance novels and libraries, and her expertise on self-published and indie-published books in libraries is, like, always in demand. Honestly, she's so great, as you'll soon find out. And we talk about a lot of titles, as per usual, and you'll find all of them listed in the show notes on booklistonline.com slash shelf hyphen care. Let's do it. Thank you so much for joining me, Robin Bradford. Thank you for having me. So, so I know you have uh, your finger on the pulse of what's happening in publishing and romance because you're a queen of collection development. Oh, well, thank you. I guess it was like 2018 when Jasmine Guillory's first book, The Wedding Date, came out and Helen Huang's Kiss Quotient. It, those are both debuts that debuted as trade paperbacks. And that seemed to sort of start a movement of moving romance to trade paperback as opposed to the mass market paperback. Is that, did you notice that? Am I making this up? <laughs> You're not making it up, but it's not. Does it matter? Completely I guess accurate. Okay. It's not completely accurate. Good. I would look more towards Sonali Dave's The Bollywood yeah, yeah. Uh, Affair, I believe. Yes. Bride? Um, Bollywood Bride? It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> Bollywood Affair from 2014. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. It seems like Trade so long paperback. ago. So it had been happening. A lot of it, I, I kind of put the start of it in Alora's Kate, actually. They were doing, I don't know if that's where it started, but they were known for digital originals. And when they would put them into paperback, it would be trade. So for those who aren't in the know, Allura's Cave was an indie romance publisher and they're defunct now, right? They are defunct. Sadly defunct. 
I'm not sure if that's where it started. That's when kind of I first noticed because they weren't coming out in mass market paperbacks, which to me was, yay, that's fantastic. Wait, why is that Um, yay? Because a lot of people have, a lot of library people have kind of a visceral dislike or dismissal of mass market paperback. I think dismissal is the word I want there, not dislike. They're ephemeral. They're something you don't even have to catalog if you don't want to. Just throw it on a spinner rack. And no, listen, that not cataloging them makes yes. my scalp itch. Yes. I mean, that's yes. oh. but that's <laughs> a separate not, conversation. Is it though? Oh, I don't, I don't think it is. I think that it's all one dismissal of romance. They'll say, no, we treated the paperback westerns the same way. Yeah, but the scope of what you had in paperback western versus what you had in romance is completely different. Yeah. Wait, so, I know you're not trying to throw shade at long arm right now. I am throwing long shade at long arm, which I love people it. love, but again, treated as kind of ephemeral and you don't really need to read them in any order. And maybe for long arm, that's true. But for romance, People wanted specific titles by specific authors. And when you're not cataloging them and you're just throwing them on the spinner rack, it kind of says you don't care. You don't care that people want this particular book. You don't care that this particular book is actually book three in a series. And yes, they would like to read what happens after book two and before book four. What happened to the (laughs) brother and yeah. Right. That's actually a thing that people coming into your library care about so for me when it came out as trade you couldn't do that you couldn't throw it on a spinner rack now granted a lot of people weren't ordering them anyway because Alora's k was an indie publisher and blah 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 i mean that's another conversation but you couldn't just throw them on a spinner rack they didn't fit on a spinner rack did they so you actually had to treat it like an actual book that went on the shelf Right. And yeah, so I think that's kind of what I thought this trade paperback renaissance obviously isn't the right word, but you know, that it was sort of a play for legitimacy in a larger sense. I'm not sure if they were looking for legitimacy, if if that's why they did it. I just think Do you mean publishers? Sorry. Publishers. Using too many pronouns. Right. I don't know that that is what they were aiming for when they did it, maybe. I've never asked. And that's actually a very interesting question. To me, it was just how things were going. And not everybody does that. So like Avon publishers, a regular mass market edition and a hardcover aimed at the library market, which I'm like, huh, that's very interesting. And I I don't know if they heard from lots of libraries that, you know, hardcover is what they want. I'm assuming that's how that came about. So that's like a library edition of a book? Yeah, it's marketed as library hardcover edition. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there's more, a million more questions I want to ask about this, but as a collection development librarian, what is your advice to people who see several different formats? Is there one that you think folks should go for or is there a rule? There often is a rule. Usually it's set by your collection development policy. I'm absolutely certain there are libraries out there who particularly care whether it's hardcover or trade or mass market. I don't. 
my personal preference is for trade paperback because it's lighter. Mm-hmm. So people who have issues holding heavy books don't have a problem. Yeah. The print is bigger because it's trade. So people who, you know, have problems reading mass market because the print's so Tiny small print, yeah. can use the trade, especially for books like Game of Thrones or Outlander that are yes, those heavy, books. right? When they're in trade, also trade to me, the binding doesn't seem to break as easily as a thick Outlander book. So you have you have that as well. The binding seems to stay longer. So I prefer trade, but it all depends on how you shelve it. We shelf trade with regular hardcovers mm-hmm. and we have separate paperback sections. Well, so, so I wonder what kind of confusion that's causing for people as exactly. more romances get published in trade. I well, wonder and, if- and even if you buy the hardcover of a John Grisham and then you're right. replacing his backlist and his backlist is in mass market. It's a little confusing. It's my first time working in a library that separated out paperbacks. I know lots of libraries do it. I just had never worked in one before. Yeah. So it's a little bit interesting These that I now take that into account when buying replacements. Where is it going to go in a library? Are people yeah. going to find it? Also, our paperbacks float and the regular fiction collection does not float. So if I buy something in mass market paperback for a certain library, there's no guarantee it's going to stay there. Right. If someone from somewhere else checks it out. So that library may not have that book for very long. Do they also have a copy in trade or hardcover so that they will still have? I mean, these are just the things that I think about now in terms of format where I only thought about them in terms of title before. Yeah, I think that's something that we don't always talk about in collection development. It's not just the titles you're collecting, but how you're collecting them, how people are going to find them. Yes. Is that because it's great to to have it, but if no one knows you have it, right, then you might as well not have it. Then you might as well not. (laughs) Exactly right. So is that something that you learned from working with the public or is that just something that, you know, being in libraries forever made you understand? I mean, what did you have sort of an aha moment of like, oh, if I buy this format, it's going to get buried in this section and no one's going to find it. One of the best things from working in Indianapolis was working with my friend, Amy Dalton, who did media for us. So she did DVDs, music CDs, Mm -hmm. and she was always making the point of thinking like the public, because we get very caught up in library jargon, library, everything. And so I learned this lesson from her on several different fronts. One being, please put your things in order, because they would put DVDs, just like all the A's together. And she's like, nobody can find anything. But if you (laughs) think like the public, you're looking for things in order. Everything else in your library is in order. Why aren't your DVDs in order? So that's one thing. The other thing is just because you're always three to six months ahead of time, that book that you think is old is new to some patron. And so take that into consideration. Like you're three Pattersons away now from the one that was just released, but the public is not because they don't run three to six months ahead of publication. So that was another patron-centric lesson that I took from her. And so also thinking about formats, 
because you may think, well, we have that title in whatever format, but it's not to the patron. You may as not, you may as well not even have that because of whatever reason they have that it doesn't work for them. And, and I you know- can't always buy everything in every format, but it's good to think about what will benefit the most people. Yeah. And I think especially with digital collections, I, do you manage your digital collections at all? I or don't. is that a separate? I don't. That's a separate person. I miss yeah. it. I used to do it at yeah. Indianapolis and at Timberland um, for a little while, but now I do not do any. So when I did collection development at Kanawha County in West Virginia, shout out to them. That was sort of the advent of Overdrive. We had just joined Overdrive and we thought it would save us money. And I think a lot of people thought that because we'd be able to buy one ebook copy that would last longer or whatever. We thought we'd be able to buy one ebook copy that would meet the needs of several print copies or would last longer or whatever. But it turns out the more formats you have, the more formats people want. Yes. And we found this out um, with Lucky Day collections. So the Lucky Day collection are how we used it. Popular books where the hold list is a mile long, but you have some copies and branches where they don't catch holds mm-hmm. and you could just come in and find it on the shelf and it's your lucky day, which is fantastic. I like people that love it. We had an express collection. Lucky day is so much more exciting. People, uh, people love it. And we both Timberland and Pierce County do it for DVDs as well. So oh. it's fantastic. When we started it at Timberland, I thought, oh, this is great. A lot of people will check it out and the hold list will go down because they're on hold. They come in, they see it. Oh my God. And take it and it would immediately, when they checked it out, it would take them off hold. Yeah. So that was great. Except for, we learned that it's two separate groups of people. And so it's not just the people who have it on hold, who may have had it on hold for a long time and they put it on hold and forget. Like they don't even browse to know mm-hmm. that we have it on Lucky Day. They come in, they pick up their holds, they leave. But it's the people who may not put things on hold because they're intimidated by the hold list or just aren't in that big of a hurry and they will get it when they get it, who come in and take the Lucky Days. So it's not really helping to eliminate the list. It's just actually adding to the people who have access which is great yeah it's sort of solving a different problem i don't know that i ever like explicitly thought about it that way that adding formats or adding circ rules or whatever opens your collection up to new users it doesn't just make it easier for existing users but right it opens it up for new users i think that is kind of the impetus behind having the library of things too so like what would happen if we Searched board games. What would yeah. happen if we searched cake pans? What would happen if we, you know, searched Roku's? Like you're opening it up to more people in your community who may have forgotten that the library had something for them. So I, I do think people are thinking about that. Yeah. The point of public libraries for folks to use it. Sometimes we forget. Yes. And to uh, not throw up roadblocks then to that. So circling back to romance, I guess, do you think that these trade paperbacks are opening up access to romance for people? Or do you think it's making it less embarrassing for romance readers? Or I suspect it is because I feel like 
if your choices are hardcover and mass market, there's a lot of people who aren't going to get published because mass markets aren't selling. I wonder um, why. Is that, do you think that's because of ebooks or just? I do. Yeah. I do. And hardcovers are expensive to produce. So that was always a big thing. Like you would move to hardcover and you've arrived. They're not putting debut authors in romance in hardcover. That's just not a thing. But they are in trade. Exactly. So that's opening up another lane for people who may not have had a shot otherwise. Right. I don't know if this, not if this means anything, but, you know, the two big ones that I mentioned, and I know, and you talked about Sonali Dev, so this is also true of her, but Jasmine Guillory and Helen Huang are, all three of them are own voices, authors, voices that we wouldn't, you know, you don't usually hear from in a big splashy way in romance. We're getting these big splashy debuts and that seemed really exciting. Yeah. Do you think it it has, it indicates some sort of sea change or it's just something exciting and we'll see what happens i want it to be a sea change if my wishes count for anything it's a sea they do change. robin they do <laughs> but i'm not convinced yet i mean it seemed on one level it seemed heartening to have own voices romance given the sort of automatic legitimacy based on being on trade paperback So have you seen that this has had any effect on indie published books getting a better traction in libraries? I think in some. I think once, because they're looking a lot like the traditionally published romances that are out now. So you're not necessarily just looking on the shelf saying, oh, well, that's an indie book. I'm not going to read that. You don't know. You can't tell. Right. You can't judge a book by its cover anymore. Hmm. Exactly. If they look just as good, sometimes better than traditionally published big publishing house books. So I think that it's helping in that area for sure. And also a lot of, I forgot to mention this, but Christian publishing, huge in trade paper. Also urban fiction, huge in trade paper. So trade paper is a thing. Yeah. So I don't think it's going away. I think it's here to stay actually. So I thought it was this hot new thing, but romance sort of maybe picked up its cues from Christian publishers and from that ur- the urban fiction point. Well, um, even trade. before that, Triple Crown, I mean, in yeah. Indie Pub, they Very, took right. their yeah. cues from Indie Pub. And Indie Pub was like getting no credit for it. But yes. I truly believe this is where that particular trend started. So if folks want to have their fingers on the pulse of things, being kind of aware of what's happening in indie publishing is a good idea. Yes. It's not always easy. Do you have any favorite things that you use to keep up with indie publishing or... Outside of romance, I am terrible about keeping up with other genres, indie pubs. Mm -hmm. Um, It's only because I'm so immersed in romance that I see, you know, people who are doing it and then go off and read their books and find their books. I would say probably NetGalley has a lot of indie books on there. Okay. So even if you don't end up getting the galley, you at least are discovering what's out there. Yeah, and and what's coming up because net galleys and all what's coming pre-pub, up, right? Um, a lot of them are, but a lot of indie ones are not. They, I don't know if they're putting them up just so people will notice them. But sometimes yeah. you'll see things that were published like a year or even more ago. But it's a way to get noticed. And then what about if patrons? 
if library workers working with a patron who came to, let's say, romance via a trade paperback, how can the library worker more fully indoctrinate that reader into the world? Like they'd never read a romance before and they saw a review of Helen Huang's in Entertainment Weekly and they loved it Uh, and now they want more. Ah, so reader's advisory. Right. Yes, so you have to familiarize yourself with themes and tropes, Mm -hmm. especially in romance tropes that may be in that book. Google is your friend when it comes to tropes. If you know a trope and you don't know anything else, you can Google that trope and get a list of books. So what would the kiss quotient be? It's sort of a, it's almost like an arranged marriage, even though it's not an arranged marriage. It's give me an example of, of using Google to master your tropes. Master your tropes. So you could do something like enemies to lovers or friends to lovers into Google. Friends to lovers plus romance. You're going to get a list of books eight miles long. Something on that list will appeal to your patron. Enemies to lovers. You can throw in a bunch of other different things. So if you wanted to throw in the Asperger's aspect just to see if there are other books that might have characters with Asperger's. And there are. I think that's also Um, an underrated collection development tool. You know, if you see that these books are going like hotcakes, do like reader's advisory for your entire collection. I think you might encounter some indie pub books on those lists also. Yes, absolutely. Because a lot of things that are not traditionally white, heterosexual, you know, with differently abled LGBT are being published in indie pub because trad pub is very slow when it comes to incorporating differences in their books. So you're just now starting to see lesbian fiction, lesbian romance. Right. With Olivia Waite. Olivia Waite. You're just now starting to see others. Well, Rebecca Weatherspoon Mm -hmm. published lesbian fiction years ago. You're just now seeing this come into trad pub in a way that it's been there for ages in indie pub. And I kind of use indie pub as a catch-all to be small publishers and also self-pub. So I am not making that distinction that possibly could be made. Well, so maybe that's the takeaway or one of the takeaways is if you see a trend or what appears to be a trend in traditional publishing, look to indie and see, find its roots. How many things you've missed. And then go (laughs) crawl under your bed because it's too much. (laughs) Um, But you don't have to buy it all. You can just buy a sampling of things and see how they do. It is a lot. And I think people get overwhelmed with how many things in indie pub are out there especially if they go looking like an Amazon. Just look for the things that have print copies. That's going to narrow it way down. And then do what you would do for anything else. Read the blurb, read some reviews, go to Goodreads, look and see just how you would do with any other book, and then take a chance. I have bought many a trad pub book that has not moved off the shelf once we put it there. So I don't feel bad about buying something that's even less expensive than a hardcover trad pub book that might not move. 
that's, you know, I wonder how much, how many of us have that confirmation bias that, well, if we buy an indie press book and it doesn't get checked out, that's because it's an indie press. It's like, well, that's probably not the only book you bought this year that didn't check out. Exactly, exactly. And while you're making your list of romantic suspense authors, for instance, and you're putting Suzanne Brockman, who I love, on there and, you know, all the other authors. Are you putting any indie authors? Are you putting any diverse authors? We don't need to know about Suze. We know who else is out there writing romantic suspense. And if you're not putting them on the list, don't be surprised if they don't check out. Because again, going back to Amy's wise words, you're immersed in this world, so you know about it, but your patrons may not. They come in, they check out their holds, they take a bookmark that has romantic suspense authors on there so they can go home and place more holds. Right. And you know, patrons still love a bookmark. Now, I think yes. that will never change. Never. Even if they're checking out ebooks, they will take the bookmark because you're putting good info on there. Yes. And they want the info. I love it. Okay. I wanted to wrap up with. I just want you to tell me what you're reading right now or what you've read recently that delighted you that you want to share with the world or the shelf care listeners, as it were. I'm actually reading right now a book called Low Down Dirty by Holly Trent. And I think this is an older title by her. But when I was trolling Amazon for something else of hers that I absolutely love, I found this one and I was like, oh. I must have it. So what what is it? What is it about Holly Trent that's irresistible? Her books are just that perfect mix of love and filth and (laughs) humor, which, yay, that's why I'm here. The magic recipe. Also recently, I read Date Me, Bryson Keller by Kevin Van Wye, which I think is a pre-pub I can't ever keep up. Well, that'll be in the show notes. YA novel, which was fantastic. Grumpy Jake by Melissa Blue. That title. I just, how could you not read that book? And then you pick it up and you read it and you're delighted. I love it. So, And I read the Morris Day, the Morris Day uh, autobiography. Oh, yeah. Is it called Out of Time? On Time. On Time, of course. Yes. You're all over the place. I love it. Every January, I read a musician's biography. That's just a tradition that I started probably five years back. And so I try to keep it going. Nice. Do you have a theme for every month or just January? I don't. Nope. Just January. So any bold predictions for publishing in 2020? Or you just want to be like, everybody read Holly Trent and leave me alone? (laughs) Bold predictions. Diversity is coming to small town romance. Okay. I'm excited. So about Tracy, that. Tracy Livesey has a book out now, Sweet Talkin' Lover. Yes. Which just came out, I think, right at the end of the year, which brings diversity to small town romance. And I think that is something that's going to continue. Yeah, and KM Jackson has that wonderful KM Jackson Markian yes. series that I love. So absolutely. But yes, so I think that that is some and and it's trad pub. So it's not indie pub. And and I think that matters. Actually, 
Kwana just made, or KM Jackson just made an announcement today about her new book, which sounds amazing. It's a road trip novel, two best friends, and someone is looking to marry Keanu Reeves. What? Yes. Sorry to his girlfriend. Of course, it turns out that the person who's perfect for her is the one she should have been looking at all along. Yes. Oh my gosh, friends to lovers. (laughs) Yes. I love it. So I'm stoked for this book. Oh my gosh, that will be exciting. And she, I love, she's such a good storyteller that I feel like she could write anything, but an exciting plot. It gives me extra incentive. Perfection. Like I'm, I'm like, yes. Yes. And I can't wait for the movie. Like, I don't know that there's, oh. there's not a movie announcement, but it needs to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Keanu Reeves will do a cameo in anything, it seems like. So, yes. And I not? think that he would be delighted. I think yes. that he would find it so funny and humorous. And yes, somebody give her a deal. Listen, all you movie execs who listen to Shelf Care, the podcast, <laughs> yes. you heard it here first. All right, so diversity in small towns, very exciting because everyone loves a small town romance, but it'll be nice to have it be a little more realistic. And just moving into places where traditionally have been very white. So again, Rebecca's cowboy romance. There's no reason why cowboy romances should be as white as they are. It's not historically accurate. It's not currently accurate. It's just not, what are you doing? But that's just what has been published. And I think now we're just starting to break away from all of that. Yeah, to more accurately reflect yes. the world. Yes. I mean, a I, lot of people don't understand that's actually what the push for diversity is. It's not to erase, it's to accurately portray what the rest of us are seeing, but y'all apparently can't see. Yes, a lot of people are having a hard time with reality. So I just yeah. the, the fact that romance in, in a lot of ways, maybe not in all the ways, but is sort of embracing becoming more realistic, even as it holds on to that happily ever after fantasy, there's something really poetic about that. Yes, happily ever after for everybody. For everybody. Well, thank you so much for taking this long and winding journey with me. <laughs> not. Sure. Um, I am on Twitter way too much at two flows t-u-p-h-l-o-s which means blind in greek which oh. i am that's about all i remember from the greek i took in undergrad perfect all <laughs> right so yeah and i mean i think if folks are looking for a way to stay on top of or just just get even more even a little bit more informed about indie publishing just following you on twitter is a good idea thank you This episode of Shelf Care, the podcast, is also sponsored by Sourcebooks Explore, publisher of Chris Ferry's Everyday Science Academy series. New from the number one science author for kids, Chris Ferry, the Everyday Science Academy series uses real-world examples and is perfect for elementary-aged children by supporting the Common Core Learning Standards, Next Generation Science Standards, and the Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math STEM Standards. It's time to take Chris Ferry's unique brand of learning to the next level. Little scientists will soar with Let's Fly a Plane, dive into the science of light and sound waves with Let's Ride a Wave, speed into the science of motion with Let's Get Moving, and learn how to make colorful rainbows dance across the sky with Let's Make a Rainbow. The first Everyday Science Academy books by Chris Ferry come out in June from Sourcebooks Explore. Hooray! 
Hello, I'm Heather Booth, audio editor at Booklist, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking about audiobook trends from the ALA Midwinter Book Awards. The American Library Association's divisions acknowledge audiobooks in a few different ways. Three are lists, and one is an award. RUSA, the Reference and User Services Association, creates the Listen List. The Association of Library Service to Children, ALSC, names a number of audiobooks and music titles to the notable children's recording list. YALSA, the Young Adult Library Services Association, names titles to the Amazing Audiobooks list. And finally, the Odyssey Awards, jointly administered by YALSA and ALSC, bestows the only actual award for audiobooks in the ALA's stable. This year, in addition to the winner, there are four Odyssey Honor titles. The complete lists are available online. So what are we hearing about the state of audiobooks from these lists and honors? First off, audiobooks still feature top-notch audio talent and voice actors like Dion Graham, Bonnie Turpin, Tess Netting, and Cassandra Morris, January Lavoie, and more. These narrators are essentially household names in the audiobook community, and rightly so. In their performances, we hear the importance of a classic audiobook talent style and the care and dedication that it takes to move a story from the print to our ears in compelling, carefully crafted tones. Beyond the classic narrative performances, something I see strong and growing are two other styles of narration that are popular with listeners as well. First, Own Voices Memoirs, narrated by the authors. The Own Voices Memoir is one that can proudly claim space on any diverse audiobook collection's shelf. Becoming, by Michelle Obama. Shout, by Lori Halse Anderson. Sean David Hutchinson's memoir, Brave Face. And Notes from a Young Black Chef, by Kwame Anwache, are all narrated by their authors. And who else would we want to voice their stories? When we make space for diverse voices, and when those voices are telling their own stories in an audiobook, we honor those experiences, can learn from them, can relate to them, and gain a greater understanding of the vastness of the human experience. The other trend I want to acknowledge is our growing love of full cast productions. Some productions offered many voices to narrate different segments of a story, like in Julie Berry's Lovely War from Amazing Audiobooks or Good Talk, a memoir in Conversations by Mira Jacob on the Listen List, where each segment or character is voiced by a different person, giving a really broad base for understanding the work. Daisy Jones and the Six also employs a behind-the-music-style interview format for its full class, and it even includes a song by the imaginary band, something the print just can't offer. It was a good year for graphic novels in print, and yes, in audiobooks, too. Full cast shine in the several graphic novels that were honored, including the first-ever graphic novel audiobook win for an odyssey, Scholastic's Hey Kiddo. The many voices work in tandem with outstanding production elements to give these voices a backdrop, action, and a vivid sense of place and time, bringing the images to life in a way that enriches the reading experience. If you haven't yet listened to Hey Kiddo, please carve out a few hours to do so. It's a really remarkable production and an excellent example of what a graphic novel and audio can be when it's produced with love, care, and creativity. Overall, I'm just thrilled that this year has offered so many diverse voices, and thrilled that when we say that for audiobooks, we really do mean the voices. From the Cherokee language speakers in Odyssey Honor, We Are Grateful, Ojali Haliga by Tracy Sorrell, and narrated by a full cast, to Abigail Revish's narration of a character who speaks in ASL for Song for a Whale, to Danny Martinic, a non-binary actor in their first audio performance as a character whose gender is not specified and we're not from here, to Listen List honoree Queenie's narrator Siobhan Marks, who embodies the tech-focused world of British contemporary 20-somethings, to the bilingual Amador family, voicing Mango Abuela and Me, which is available in English and Spanish, and back to Jared Krasaska, bringing his memoir to life along with his family and friends in Hey Kiddo. 
The authenticity of contemporary audiobooks offers listeners so many avenues for appreciating the stories around us. This episode of Shelf Care, the podcast, is sponsored by Ravel, publisher of Irene Hannon's Starfish Pier. Ex-Delta Force operator Stephen Rourke left the rigors of combat behind to run fishing charters in Hope Harbor. Business is good, but making peace with his past is more challenging than he expected. First grade teacher Holly Miller leads a low-profile existence until she's recruited to advocate for a cause that's dear to her heart. When she solicits Stephen's assistance, sparks fly, especially after they find themselves on opposite sides of an issue that disrupts their placid seaside community. As these two seemingly incompatible souls search for common ground, might they discover a connection and a future filled with promise? Starfish Pier by Irene Hannon is coming out in April from Rebel. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Donna Seaman, adult books editor at Booklist, and more relevant to this conversation, she was the chair of the Carnegie Committee for... Donna, give me the full award oh, the name. Full award name. The Andrew Carnegie Medals of Excellence in Fiction and Nonfiction. Excellence. Excellence. I So this award, you know, as a former public library employee... This award was useful to me because I knew that the winners would be good book club picks, but I don't think that's really part of the official criteria <laughs> for the award, right? So can you talk a little bit about what excellence means, what you look for in a Carnegie winner? Yes, thank you. And of course, what's really exciting about the Carnegies, as we like to call them, is that they are books chosen by librarians and, and other literary types associated with libraries and even a bookseller on each committee that can be recommended really widely. That They have broad appeal. The excellence is both in their artistry, but also choice of subject and point of views. They you know, should be really engaging, provocative books that will interest people that might never imagine they'd be interested in the subject of nonfiction or perhaps don't read the kind of fiction that the novel may be. Uh, so the criteria was pretty simple. It was just they yeah. should be outstanding books. Books recommended, you know, that you could recommend widely and confidently. Right. I mean, there it's... I would say it's deceptively simple. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, when it comes down this, to the selection. And also, it's part of the whole Andrew Carnegie Foundation when all those public libraries Andrew Carnegie built and the, yes. just the belief in making books accessible and available. So. Yeah. You alluded to a committee. Yeah. So can you talk just real quick about the selection process? How many fights you had to break up as the chair? <laughs> Well, actually, I'll just say this was a fantastic committee, and perhaps I've said that about other committees, but this really was. There's seven of us, and one is an independent bookseller Mm -hmm. who always brings a very useful perspective to the discussion. We had an astonishing number of conference calls, I will say, and lots of emails. The process is really kind of wild. I mean, everyone nominates books. So we end up with this enormous spreadsheet of books and keep track of who's reading them. And we have to eliminate. We have hundreds of titles. We have to get down to six finalists. So there's a lot of email discussion. And then we had very good, lively conference calls where we would just kind of start out saying no, 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 until we started getting down to that long list, that wonderful long list of 45 titles. That was kind of the best. And it just gets harder after that, of course. Yeah, and we'll have a link to the long list and the short list and the winners in the show notes. Yay. So y'all can click and see what they talked about. So this is not your first Carnegie. Oh, no. <laughs> so do you feel like anything has 
How long have the Carnegies been around? It started in 2012. 2012. So have you noticed any changes in kind of what's being nominated or any patterns or I'm not sure what? Mm, Is there anything that kind of feels true from year to year or... I think the fiction stays pretty, I mean, fiction changes a lot. Right. But, you know, we're looking at literary fiction. And, you know, I think we've always had a pretty good mix of first-time authors mm-hmm. and established figures. So I think that's come through. And also a good mix of styles. You know, there were some really funny novels on this list and some really deeply serious books, too. Nonfiction seems to sort of shift around. We didn't have very many biographies at all this year. Oh. In other years, we have. And in fact, a winner has been a biography. We really watch for science titles because I think a lot of us involved in Carnegie's always feel that that's an area that we could always use better recommendations in. Right. And, you know, when they're good, they're really good. Uh, We had a lot of cultural history this time around that I thought was very interesting. And sort of fresh takes, like unusual styles of memoir and places, you know, focus on plays. A lot of very personal books in the the nonfiction. I mean, when people say, you know, I only read nonfiction, it's like, well, (laughs) but what does that mean? There's so much to choose from. Yeah, I think that's kind of the bigger challenge in a way to recommend right. nonfiction, and I find that really exciting. I was also thinking about, we did not come up with a lot of story collections. Short story collections kind of struggle, but there's always some on the long list. I haven't made it to the um, finalists in a while, but and we had some very creative nonfiction titles, including Figuring by Maria Popova, which was one of our finalists. So. Yeah, the finalists, but... Oh. Let's talk about the winners. The big winners. Oh my god. So let's start with should we start with nonfiction since we were sure. just talking about nonfiction? Let's start with nonfiction. I'm going to look at my notes to make sure I get this absolutely right. The winner of the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Nonfiction is Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. This was published by Simon and Schuster. I thought when I heard that announcement, I was surprised and, I mean, excited because that was a book that one of my reviewers That's did. Right. And, you know, it seemed to sort of fit in with kind of this true crime zeitgeist, even though it's not exactly a true crime book. Mm-hmm. It's but, kind of, it's got that vibe. Yeah. And the way Higginbotham wrote this, I mean, it is truly gripping. I was looking at it again. Yeah. And, you know, it's got, people always say about nonfiction, it reads like a novel. And yes. I mean, he really sets scenes so vividly. He's got great pacing and dialogue and those funny little details that make you feel like you're there. Yeah. Uh, The committee went nuts for this book, I will just say. (laughs) It was kind of interesting to me. And, of course, it's a really heart-revving subject. It's terrifying. Yes. And the aftermath since the terrible nuclear accident in uh, 1986 has created this really strange, wonderful world where there's been no human beings and nature's returned. Uh, So there's... It's an eeriness to the whole thing that might be that sort of true kind feeling. And yeah. of course, all irresponsibility and right. lies. And yeah, the whole, it's a complicated story told with great vigor and sort of unflagging excitement on the author's part, which always makes for the best nonfiction. I can see why that would appeal to a, a wide range of readers. Definitely. And yeah, and it's a subject that, you know, kind of gets revisited all the time. And, right. I mean, there yeah. was just that show. show there was a yeah, series. some sort of premium cable series. <laughs> right. That neither of us have seen. But, right. Yes. But, but we, heard we, tell. Heard, we heard tell of it. <laughs> so what about fiction? Hit me with the fiction. I'm going to hit you with the fiction. This is a brilliant novel, of course. Right. Lost Children Archive by Valeria Lucelli. This was published by Alfred A. Knopf, a division of Penguin Random House. Lost Children Archive is such a creative novel. Lucelli's a very imaginative, unusual writer. We've been reviewing her small press books. Mm-hmm. And this was, 
you know, her first Random House title with Knopf. And it's about a couple who are audio documentarians. So it's a lot about listening. And they go on a cross-country trip with their two children and end up involved with um, the history of the Southwest and the current immigration debacle on the Mm -hmm. border. And it's a book about listening, but it also is a book about archiving and documenting. And there are documents and even photographs in this novel. Oh, my gosh. It sounds like a real librarian's novel. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a mobile archive in their car. Great characters, a lot of suspense, very sensitive and just unexpected, everything about it, really fresh. Well, that sounds really exciting. I feel like, especially because it sort of touches on a current political issue, that will make an amazing book club pick. Oh, I think so. And, you know, it touches on humanitarian crisis, also the many crises that have taken place in that part of our continent. Yeah. Uh, There's a deep sense of history about Native American life as well. And Lucille is a Mexican-American writer, so she brings a lot of knowledge about the subjects to the book. So, yeah, much to talk about. So I hope everyone goes out and reads those books, or at least reads enough to be able to suggest them to patrons. (laughs) So I always look forward to seeing what's hot with the Carnegie Committee. So thank you, Donna, for talking to me about it. Oh, Susan, thank you so much for having me in. Wow, what an episode, am I right? Thanks to Robin Bradford for sharing your expertise and going with the wackadoodle flow of that interview. And thanks to my booklist colleagues Heather Booth and Donna Seaman for breaking down the book award season buzz. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Shelf Care, the podcast. Don't forget the almighty show notes, which live on booklistonline.com shelf hyphen care. Happy reading! Book.